We're Kyler and Cody McCormick, two brothers on a journey to pave our own path while chasing our passion. While building our adventure filmmaking brand, The Outbound Life, we've become sponsored by some of the top brands in the film and travel industries, acquired Fortune 500 clients, and have spoken on stages all across the country sharing our story. We now invite you along on our journey as we sit down with inspiring entrepreneurs, creators, and diverse thought leaders to discuss how to live a life we consider outbound, a life where you believe your story matters and live beyond your limits. Come along and live the outbound life. Today, we are joined by Randall Wallace. Randall is a screenwriter, director, producer, and songwriter who came to prominence by writing the screenplay for the historical film Braveheart, starring Mel Gibson. Braveheart was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and won five, making it one of the most Oscar-nominated films of all time. Shortly after, he wrote the screenplay for the Jerry Bruckheimer blockbuster, Pearl Harbor, directed by Michael Bay. Randall has since directed films such as The Man in the Iron Mask, We Were Soldiers, Secretariat, and Heaven is for Real. His films have earned over $1 billion at the box office. Now, Wallace graduated from Duke University and put himself through a year of divinity school by teaching karate. Now that's a story I'm, I'm dying to hear, I gotta say off the bat. Um, in addition to his work as a filmmaker, he has authored nine books is the founder of Hollywood for Habitat for Humanity, and is the father of three sons. Randall, we could not be more honored and more excited to be talking to you right now. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you guys. I, I'm, I'm really thrilled to be with you um, uh, as we start. And you just read my, my bio, my little blurb bio. I, I wanna tell you one thing why I wanted to come on with you guys. Mm -hmm. um, I, you, you recently did um, a podcast with my son, Andrew, on, uh, on his yep. podcast. And it's something that he had pointed out to me about you guys before that ever happened. But when I heard the podcast, I really realized it. When I think about what is essential in life and what is important to talk about, it gets down to me about a spirit um, C.S. Lewis wrote, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, um, you have a body. And um, I would even, at, at the risk of rewriting C.S. Lewis, I would, I would change soul to spirit um, mm. in that spirit is the animating force that drives someone. And what I heard in you guys was a spirit, an attitude about... Um, moving outward into mm. the unknown, into the, into some danger, into some risk, into excitement, um, and doing it in a positive way. Um, mm. And I found that really exciting. So I'm thrilled to, to get to talk with you guys. It's an honor for me. Thank you. Well, well thank you. And I mean, that's exciting to hear because we definitely wanted to ask why. You know, why'd you say yes? Why'd you say yeah, yes to we, come we were, on to this? We were, we're a curious. bit shocked to and, and very flattered to, that you would say yes. So that means a lot. And it was really fun getting the chance to talk to your son, Andrew. And even, you know, there's so many things that we want to explore in this conversation with you. But I think one of the, the fun elements, among many others, is the fact that you work on these movies with your sons. Totally. And how there's there's different wirings and you guys all kind of come together and like you just said kind of get at the the spirit of of these stories that are mind-blowing and uh, transformative and um, some of our favorite movies that we've ever seen so i've got three sons and these the fascinating thing like listening to you you two are, are brothers like Andrew and his his older brother Cullen are yeah. they're they're different mm. um, and yet you know they're so different and yet so much the same but mm. Andrew is and he's been this way from like birth he sees things as they are and that's a really um remarkable gift, especially in our family, because we're dreamers. And so we'll, we'll look at something like Cullen and I were in Scotland uh, when Cullen graduated from high school and was about to go to off to school. Yeah. I took him to Scotland to live with the, um, 
the battle reenactors of Braveheart for a week up in the Highlands wearing kilts. Oh, wow. Nice. And these are criminals. They're, you know, like drug running, murder committing, uh, headbanger guys. Oh, and, wow. uh, uh, and I took Cullen up there and we would be just staring at a, at a forest and he would just hold up his hands and say, everybody shut up because he was imagining worlds that hmm. other people couldn't see. You know, Andrew could look at whatever is and know exactly what's going on. So hmm. Andrew said to me, you really need to talk to these guys. Um, so that, that was a, it was a cool thing. And I'm really glad he did. Well, it's, it's fun to hear that. Cause I think that, and that's something that we're curious to talk about how, yeah, I mean, Kyler and I, right. We, grew up together in the same household and we come from a household of dreamers like our parents were always like if you can dream it and then you work hard enough to match that like anything is possible but i think even kyler and i have different characteristics where kyler is more of that uh he, he's more of the storyteller and more of the uh you know he creates what's possible and i'm definitely a little bit more of the practical of like okay here's how we're going to get it done and here's how we bring that to life which right. is like you know we we it's the team and yeah and we're always me to grow and yeah we're always really intrigued um especially when there's somebody like yourself that we look up to so much kind of understanding where you come from and it was funny even you know even we, we read your book and it was really inspiring uh, but one of the dynamics you talk about is that difference between your mom and your dad and your dad just being very practical like okay you're writing a story can you sell it is it good and your mom is more so like well, what does it mean? Where's the art in it? And I think we have the same, a really similar kind of wiring with our parents. And I, you know, probably resonate more with that more sensitive, like artistic side that I get from my mom and Cody. He's just got the wiring of that. Yeah. Much more practical sees it for how it is, but enough about us. Let's jump right into the good stuff. Let's jump right into Braveheart. And I am so excited because this is my favorite movie of all time. I've seen it more times than I can count. I've made everybody in my life pretty much watch it. And let's see, Cody, was this the first R-rated movie we ever saw? Yeah. No, well, it's funny because Kyler and I were just trying to recall this story before we got on. And I think how it went down was our parents had, they were at, maybe it was a church event or a conference or something. And the pastor, one of the main takeaways was you have to live with a brave heart. And from that, I think it literally, it was our mom who, who came home and was like, guys, we need to watch Braveheart. And we were pretty young at the time. Like Heather said, I don't think we had seen an R-rated movie before, but here we are as a family, we're going to watch Braveheart. We watched it and it was a very memorable experience. Um, but I think, you know, it's funny hearing that story because, um, or even thinking about that story of um, the fact that, Braveheart and the story and um, how you develop that has impacted so many different lives. And I think from you talk about a little of the mission that we're on with our company, The Outbound Life, um, you know, we're not always doing it perfect where we're going outward and pursuing the risk and stuff, but it is that mindset or that mission that we're trying to live with. And we're trying to um, help bring that little bit of inspiration to others because i do think it's so powerful for people to grasp onto that concept and i think it is in a way what you term the the brave heart life you know it's it's very similar of like going after life with courage needing to live with courage yeah well but i think I, I've been, yeah i'm so sorry to, to jump in there cody but i was going to say when i think of Braveheart, you know when i talk to people about this movie this is seen as you know, it, it's a manly man movie, right? It's it's a it's a movie about war, and I think people associate it with it. But one of the things that's really interesting to me is the way you've described this movie, and you've ultimately described it as as a love story. So, Randall, I gotta ask you just off the bat: Is Braveheart the most macho film ever made, or is it the most macho chick flick ever made? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's, um, you know, that, that's a, that's a glib answer, but, um, it's, I believe impossible to make a truly manly movie without it being a truly 
womanly movie hmm. uh, that and vice versa that that we don't we don't exist without each other and every true man is is in some ways answering to and being faithful to um the woman who sits at the core of his heart hmm. um and and so is a woman uh looking for um looking for that that person who 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 is worth her love um there's a there's a moment in one of my favorite movies um excalibur mm -hmm. uh in in i've shown this movie to students at, at different times when i've taught at colleges i'll show a, a couple of scenes and and in the movie just moves me to breathless awe hmm. at times. And then I'll realize that the students are snickering at it because they somehow find it dated or overly theatrical. Sure. It's almost operatic. It's like a Wagner opera um, in its, in its scope. So the actors are, are, you know, spouting their lines with this great, you know, vigor, but yeah. there's a scene in which, um, Lancelot is riding next to Queen Guinevere because he's been sent by King Arthur to uh, to bring Guinevere back to Camelot because Arthur knows that if Lancelot is bringing Guinevere back, there's nothing on earth that can hurt her. Uh, mm -hmm. But what Arthur doesn't see coming and neither does Guinevere uh, nor does Lancelot is that the moment Lancelot sees Guinevere, the two of them are going to fall in love. And that creates this, you know, this this profound tension in the story. Yeah. Lancelot is riding next to Guinevere, and um, she she has spurred her horse up beside him and says, "The ladies in waiting um, want me to are wondering if there's any woman who has a chance with you." And Lancelot keeps his eyes straight ahead, and he says. I'm a fighting man. I'm sworn to the quest. Hmm. And she somewhat flirtatiously, but, but with an open heart says, well, surely there's some woman who inspires you. And it catches in his throat. And he says, well, there is one. Hmm. And she says, well, tell me, surely you can tell me. And he says, it's you. And that takes her breath away. And he looks at her and he says, um, I will love you as my queen. I will love you as the wife of my best friend. As long as I live, I will love no other. Hmm. And I can't think of a human being who doesn't secretly or not, or not so secretly want to hear those words said and want to be able to say them. Hmm. Now, you know, that's the ideal we rest, wrestle in life with our um, you know, the ways we as human beings fall short yeah. of that sort of thing, um, or to, or to get to a point where, where we can say in our lives, every, every man dies or every person dies and not everyone really lives. That's certainly shot through it. I mean, you know, there it is, you know, um, uh, written behind you die trying like, yeah. Um, now, that's what we want yeah and, and and that takes a commitment of faith because if it's if you know you're gonna win you're not showing any kind of courage at all right um, you know I've uncertainty said so, you know superman is not brave when he faces bullets and he knows will bounce off his chest um so so to me the 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 shocking thing about braveheart was that when I wrote it and I finished the first draft of it, I had zero sense that anybody else in the world was going to like it. Absolutely oh, wow. none. And I showed it to a friend named Jack Bernstein, who's one of my best friends. And yeah. Jack wrote Ace Ventura. Okay. And when I, I, I would give Jack my first drafts and he, he would tell me, okay, this, 
here's where something might work if you pay it and vice versa we would do that with each other and we sat down at a restaurant and he said this is the best thing you've ever written and i was absolutely stunned because i didn't write it for other people i wrote it to say this is what moves me well and i think um it's interesting hearing that because you're talking about these stories in in the actual films they have these moments that evoke emotion and it's going through some sort of conflict and there's uncertainty in it and i think even when we look at your story you start to hint at that of writing braveheart there's uncertainty in that that whole process we like a lot of people can you know look at you now or look at the film now and be like wow braveheart it's very successful but that's not the story in the making of it. That is definitely not the story in the making of it. Tyler and I took time to read your book, Living the Braveheart Life, and you describe one of your darkest days where you literally were going through turmoil. You felt you were gonna lose um, your home, everything that you had. And basically you said a prayer and you say that from that prayer, Braveheart came. Can you bring us into that story a little bit deeper? Yeah, um, so, I had first come across the, the existence of William Wallace when Andrew was, was in his mother's belly. Um, she was pregnant with our first son and, uh, and we were on a trip to Scotland and, and walked into Edinburgh Castle and there were these statues, William Wallace yeah. and Robert the Bruce. And, um, I asked a member of the Black Watch Guards who this Wallace was, and he said, a greatest hero. And I'm like, okay. And I'm elbowing my pregnant wife, you know, greatest hero, honey. Um, yeah, Wallace. yeah. Um, but I knew at that moment it was an incredible story, but I didn't feel prepared hmm. to write it. And, um, and I had a baby on the way, and I needed to be able to, to feed him. Yeah. Um, and I got involved in TV for a number of years and was doing well in TV, um, making money. My career was really taking off. And then there was a writer's strike, which, which not only interrupted the whole business, but it, it allowed the company that I worked for to suspend all of the contracts that they had. So mm -hmm. I had had a guaranteed income. I had spent money buying a home for my family and fixing yeah. it all up because I felt sure my income was secure. Right. Yeah. Mike went on for nearly a year. I was, wow. I was losing all my money. And, and on top of that, I was having a, an emotional reaction to that. I was nodding up inside. Mm. I was actually, you know, my, I was having sort of panic attacks, I guess you'd say. It, wow. it just, yeah, my hands would tremble, and and I'd seen that happen with my father when he had lost a job, and um, and when my father had lost his job, my sister and I were farmed out to relatives for a time because my dad was in the hospital and my mother was mm -hmm. taking oh, wow. care of him, and uh, and at one point we even lived in a place that had no indoor plumbing, mm -hmm. and um, and it was one of the, it was a one of the most important times in my life and in some ways a super happy time because the relatives that had no indoor plumbing were the most courageous and loving uh, family. I mean, we'll get back to the whole concept of family, you know, uh, family as blood and family as chosen family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were my family and, and it, it wasn't a, like, they had so little, but they had everything mm, because yeah. they were there and they were willing to fight anything to protect my sister and me. Yeah. Uh, fight the demons that, and the fears that we were facing. Um, but I got down on my knees on that, that morning when I was having my most, um, my darkest hour. And my prayer was basically, as I, I mentioned this in the book, but yeah, um, I, I said to God, look, what matters to me uh, are my sons. And maybe what's best for them is not that they grow up with 
in this big house with a swimming pool and German cars in the driveway and mm -hmm. private schools, maybe what would be best for them is if we end up living in a little house the way I did it at a time when my father lost his way. And if that's what's best for my sons, then I pray you'll bring that on, that let us have it, let us go through it. But yeah. if I go down in this fight, let me go down not worshiping Hollywood, but, mm. but standing up, fighting for what I believe, waving yeah. my flag, you know, and fighting for that. And, and I stood up and went back to my desk and began to write again. And mm. it's directly from that that they may take our lives, they'll never take our freedom. It, yeah. those, those lines would never have been born without that experience, that prayer, that, that place to be. I, I was fascinated listening to, to the, the podcast you did with Andrew and you guys mm -hmm. talking about you know, a shot you were trying to get when the sun's going down and you're on top of a, uh, just a spire and yep. you've got a client, you, you get up and then think you've got the shot and you're climbing down and they, oh, let's try one more. And, let's and run you, that back. Now, it's like that becomes your finest hour. You know, yeah. that becomes, um, and, and in fact, I, I was guessing, and you tell me, but that while you go, this could go really badly and we could get really hurt here. Yeah. It's when you're aware of that, that you don't, when you get really hurt is when you think, oh, we're cool, we're fine. And then all of a yeah. sudden you step on the rake and it, you know, goes through your eyeball, right? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's those moments that become crucial, like having the courage to put yourself in the place where, where you're lost and, um, and something happens you never saw coming. I never, ever saw Braveheart coming. Hmm. Uh, and, and when I, when I wrote the script and I gave it to a young woman named Rebecca Pollock, who's Sydney Pollock's daughter, okay. and we began working, she went, who, who do you think should play William Wallace? There was only one name, um, for me, it was Mel and sent it to Mel and didn't hear and didn't hear and didn't hear. And then got a phone call. Are you sitting down? No, <laughs> sit down. Mel Gibson wants to meet you. And then the next day I, I met him and um, I want to be appropriate here, but I had walked around the neighborhood and prayed to God, please do not let me kiss his ass. <laughs> yeah. Because I knew if, if my orientation became, what does he want to hear? Right. Let me say that, that I was of no value to him. I was no value to me. Yeah, you know, I had to be. Here's and and where that meeting went was I was sitting around with a bunch of people, none of whom were saying anything, hmm. and I just felt the power of the meeting leaking away. And I leaned over the table and and started to pound on it with my fist. And I said, "Look, every movie has a message, a spirit, whether it wants to or not. It's got one." And what most movies say is the guy with the bluest eyes and the biggest biceps and the greenest money gets the girl. Right. This movie says you're faithful to your heart. Even if they cut it out of your chest, mm. you prevail. That's the movie I want to make. That's the movie I want my sons to see. Mm. Yeah. You want to make that movie? I'm your man. You don't want to make that movie. You need to say no. Well, everything you just shared there is really powerful. And I think, one of the things you touched on is it's it's almost like a posture that you can choose to live with or not. And and for right. you, that ended in a moment where you're literally on your knees praying to God and saying that, you know, I'm going to give this thing one last shot. And if I do it, it's going to be something I believe in. I'm not going to think about what Hollywood wants. I'm not going to think about all any of these other things or even going into that meeting with Mel Gibson and saying, I'm, I'm really going to pray like not to kiss his ass. And it seems to us 
Um, it's like the more you climb in life, the more opportunities, the more power, it becomes more and more tempting. It becomes more and more challenging to stay true to your convictions. Um, but it's really interesting to me, not only Braveheart, but ultimately the story of where Braveheart came from. And I think, again, people now have the liberty of watching this movie and they get to think it was all sunshine and rainbows getting it made. But one of the stories that you touched on in your book hit me on a really deep level. And this was the story of the movie was wrapped up and the sound and the color and everything was in its final form. And you were about to screen this movie to your friends and family. But instead of feeling, uh, let's say, excitement and just the thrill of doing this, you were, you were overcome by this crippling doubt. And I think that's something that all of our listeners are going to relate to in our right. own ways. Is that a story you could dive into a little bit? What, what it was like going into that screening and some of the doubt that you were experiencing? Absolutely. And um, uh, I want to, I'm excited that you ask about that. And I want to ask you a question about why you ask about that. Cause I think it's really cool that you do. Hmm. He, it's, it's as you describe, um, we, the movie was finished. So it was not, you, there are many times, I mean, when a movie's in progress, um, there are, oh, dozens of times when you screen it in unfinished form. And it's very difficult for, for an audience that's used to seeing only finished movies to see a movie in unfinished form when yeah. you can't hear all the dialogue, the, the music's not mixed in. It's maybe not music that was written for the movie. It's music you've borrowed from other things. The yep. color's not finished, all sorts of things. Um, but this was finished. And um, we were at Paramount in this gorgeous screening room that they have great big one in I'd gotten to invite a bunch of friends and I sat through the movie on pins and needles. It was like squirming in my seat going, Oh, it's too long. Oh, it's, you know, it's too, you know, Oh, we should have left that out. Oh, we, uh, oh. and, um, and I had invited friends that I'd known for a long time, you know, friends I really loved. And, and when the movie was over, I looked for them immediately. I mean, I was like holding my face in my hands and and I I looked up and they were gone. And I thought they just bugged out because they don't want to tell me, gosh, we really, it was such a good opportunity for your career to happen and, and too bad. And they didn't want to be the ones to give me that news. Yeah. And I was drifting out of the theater with all these people were just absolutely silent <laughs> as the movie ended and we're walking out like a morgue. And uh, uh, they came out, of the, both these two guys who didn't know each other, but they were both my friends, came out of the, the men's room. And I saw them then and went, oh gosh, you're still here. I, I know, I know it's too long. I know it's, I know we should have changed it. And they went, what are you, we, we've been in there crying. We just didn't want anybody to see us. And, and that was the way everybody was feeling. Hmm. Uh, I walked across the street where some of my family and friends had gathered at a place called Lucy's El Adobe okay. uh, Mexican restaurant. And I walked in and the whole restaurant started chanting, Wallace, Wallace. Wallace, and it was, uh, I, it was the most hmm. jolt from here to there that I could have gone. And what it said to me hmm. is that fear is a liar. Hmm. Is that I, I, you know, I've had friends say to me, well, look, you knew that, that this was special every minute of the way. It's like, not only did I not know it every minute of the way, I didn't know when it was finished hmm. that it worked. And sure, I knew, oh, this audience likes it, but will that audience like it? And all those, all those different things. So when I had my, my um, huge insecurity when I was there at, you know, I was exhausted emotionally yeah. and physically and 
um, and and you're feeling this fear, it doesn't mean that 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 it's true. You could be greatly misreading what's right in front of you because of those emotions. And what that gets me is to the question for you guys is that while I know you, like I heard you say it on Andrew's podcast that you you do a great deal of planning that before anything, there are meetings, there's, there's the se selling aspect, there's board meetings, people talking about, is this the image we want to project? Are we, okay, these are the guys we want to go do this thing. Um, then you get ready for the shoot and you're, you're planning where are all the dangers and, and all of those yeah. things. But there's still that time, whether it's at two in the morning yeah. or it's that you're all geared up and, you know, and, and you're going, what if this equipment doesn't work the way I've set it up? What right. if, what if I don't work the way I've set it up? What if my hands don't work when I'm climbing this wall? Yeah. Uh, this sheer yeah. face fears a liar. Um, and, and it's also your friend in, we were sold mm. a movie I'm very proud of. Um, yeah. I talked with a young guy, who, then a young man who kept a cut off platoon, cut off and surrounded platoon alive for like 36 hours of hell. Gee. And I said, how did you function in that terror? And he said, well, fear's your friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but you know, you, you could never live through it if you didn't have the energy and the awareness and the alertness that fear will give you. But when you're trying to say, hang on to something, or you're trying to make a good decision, yeah, and your mind is just flooded with fear, it ain't your friend. Yeah, it's an enemy. And you've got to you've got to look that enemy in the eye. Right. And I think I think for all of us, or I, I can only speak for myself, it can be so challenging to find the balance between, let's say, so in one regard, fear can be, maybe it's discernment, right? Like in the situation, the gentleman you talked to, it did keep him alive. And fear can do that. We have such thing as a fight or flight mode that that turns on. It's like the goal is to survive. And that's our right. friend. That's really helpful. But I think it's uh, just incredible to hear that story of how you had finished Braveheart for many years. You had poured your heart and soul, your spirit, as you're saying, into this. And yet you were in the same auditorium as all these other people. And they were being poured over with emotion. They were probably, they were left speechless, right? They didn't even have words for it. And yet it can be the case that you can be literally the the writer of Braveheart experiencing the same thing all these other people are experiencing. And yet in your mind, you are interpreting it as they're silent because they think the movie sucks. Uh, they're embarrassed for me. This is a flop. And yes, I relate heavily to everything you just said about, you know, for Cody and I with our work leading into each project, you do everything you can do to cross your T's and dot your I's and make sure all the gear is good and we've communicated clearly with the crew and okay, we're gonna look at the questions and, and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, 2 a.m. comes around and here you are, there's that little voice that's saying, are you even in the right job? Like, why are you doing this? They should be yeah. listening to somebody else. So I'm just really curious, knowing that this is just, it's a human dynamic. It really doesn't matter what you do for a living. What do you do with fear? How do you combat fear? Well, can I add one thing on that? Because oh, I, I want to add the word uh, or word self-doubt to that. Because I think ah, yeah. this fear is almost coming up as self-doubt in this instance. So like, how do you walk through self-doubt? And then even to where you are now, like, do you still struggle with that? Because I think, you know, mm -hmm. for us, some people could look at where, where we've gotten to at our career and go like, oh, you wouldn't struggle with that. But no, I'm here to say we do, right? You you do all you can and that you still doubt. Like Kyler said, some days it's like, am I even in the right career? Am I the best for this job? It's like, okay, you still, you get through another and you're like, okay, that went really well. Everyone's really happy with it. Wow, okay. Clearly I have some gifting here or something like that. But yeah, how, how do you still process through self-doubt? Man, that's such a great, great question. And um, I, I, I think the fundamental place, the fundamental place you have to get to, it, 
well, let me just say that I have to get to in life is basically there is a God. It's not me. Um, and I, I believe in the mystery and the majesty of it all, um, of life that the, I am mean, I'm, I'm sorry, this is going to be kind of like a scattered answer, but, yes. but I'll give it to you Absolutely, in the scattered yeah. way. Um, my mother, uh, passed away, um, 10 years ago mm. and, um, uh, it was, it was, of course, a sacred, it's a sacred experience to see someone die. Um, and also to have a part of what, besides the faith that she had always shown and had always taught me, part of what her dying did was tell me it's not dying. Because if you look at a corpse of someone who, and, and who could be more relevant to you than your mother. I mean, your, your biological life came out of her. Yeah. And to see that corpse and go, that's not her. That's, that is a husk. It, and no matter what people's dogma, whatever their theology has been, it was so powerful to me to, to, to think, to realize, to experience why human beings have always had a sense that, that life is in these bodies and is animating them, but the bodies aren't the, aren't the eternal part. They're not the living part. And, um, and, and there's just this, the same awe. My youngest son was born a couple of months after, after she breathed her last, he breathed his first. Hmm. And when he, when he came out, he, he, he smiled, which is almost unbelievable for a baby, but I promise you it happened. And his smile was my mother's smile. Huh. And that, the sense was he just came from where she just went. Mm. And, and that to me is the way the whole thing of self doubt is I seek the place where I'm going to be afraid at least a little, you know, like you, I, I believe you guys are going to talk with Jordan Peterson soon. I hope you are. I think it'd be a yeah. fabulous thing for all of you, him yeah. and you. Um, but, um, the uh, I've heard him say that you don't want to be so far out of your comfort zone that you can't function, but you want to um, to acclimate yourself to fear and those you know be somewhat out of your your comfort zone. Yeah. And and I'm looking for those things that are gonna like what is gonna scare me, and I that's what I'm going to go try. And, and I see you guys doing exactly the same thing. It's like, if there's no element of unknown and mystery and danger to this, then why, why is anybody going to care? Why would we yeah. care? You right. know, certainly one of the things that Braveheart taught me was if it's not moving me, how can it possibly move someone else? Wow. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's a Jane Austen quote, a, a, an ending to, that does not surprise the writer will not surprise the reader. Hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm looking for where will this story excite me? Where can I go? When I first started writing novels, I heard these experienced, and I want to say experienced equaling hack writers saying, yeah, you have to have an outline. Don't write without an outline. I think, well, if I write an outline, the only reason I think the outline works is that I've seen it somewhere else. Yeah. I'm trying to find a new story. Right. Uh, my son, Cullen, um, Andrew's younger brothers will say, the great thing about being a writer is you get to be the first 
audience of this story. Hmm. So, you know, to bring it back to your question, I think the, the point, getting to the point of saying, I don't know what to do here is the actual aim of the exercise that, that it, it's, it's your first target because when you get there, yeah, you will find things you never imagined. I mean, you know, the, the Greeks would say things like faith favors the bold, hmm. you know, um, a Christian like me would say, when you step out, God will put, put the tools in your path that you never imagined would be there. I'll hmm. give you a, a a minor little selfish example, but yeah, all my life I've loved music and done various forms of music. Yeah. And over the pandemic, I decided I was going to do a one man show and I started writing it and putting it together. And then the pandemic happened and we couldn't do it. And, and then over the couple of years I was playing in a, with a group of guys and, and I thought, okay, I'm going to do a little local concert hmm. here in July. Um, but I was having trouble finding the right mix of musicians and, and a, a guy that I know who's an incredible guitar maker and technician said, well, I know so-and-so and I know so-and-so. And all of a sudden he's calling the woman that basically taught Linda Ronstadt to sing. Wow. Have her sing back up and put, help me put together the band. And she's going, let's let's talk to neil diamond's bass player and let's talk to this legendary drummer and let's talk wow. to this and all of a sudden I'm like huh wow uh now who knows what will happen it could be an absolute train wreck but it won't be because even if it's a train wreck it'll be it'll be the most fun train wreck yeah yeah you'll have fun doing it no matter what yes so that that thing of self-doubt i think is heaven help the person that doesn't have it that's yeah. mm. that's true psychosis if if you're not asking yourself at every moment where might i be wrong here I mean, one of the things where i first got enamored of what jordan peterson was teaching is that that he was saying what could i learn from this in his you know 12 yeah. years of life yeah what could i be learning here what could this person be teaching me I mean, all the way back yeah. Tony Robbins I think years yeah. ago said the most powerful question you can ask yourself is what else could this mean mm. so if someone you mm. love is furious at you and you're talking you have no idea what it is you did wrong yeah. or, you know but you think okay what else could this mean you know Jocko yeah said recent podcast yeah be able to detach how more the the man that we were soldiers centered on and they're going to rename fort benning georgia fort moore oh uh, wow after how more wow and wow. his wife julie um but how more would say to me don't overreact to an overreaction yeah his leadership skills so but part of all of that baked into that situation is um self-doubt or at least self-questioning yeah. but when i get into the the doubt part of it yeah what i what i guess i honestly i get into is it i don't believe in myself i don't believe in my own understanding i believe god believes he can do something with me hmm so it's not like um, yeah and and, that, and maybe maybe what that is is slam me against a wall like a, a bug on a windshield that might that might it might be, be what it takes might be, might be. I yeah. mean, the other day i was talking with a, a friend because uh, i had my second knee replacement surgery i used mm. to box and play yeah, basketball yeah. And, all, and, and my knees are you know are needed to be replaced and and a friend of mine wrote me and said, my wife has had like 16 surgeries. And she said, that's the most brutal recovery of any of them. And I thought 16, wow, she's, and then I started thinking, oh, gosh, I've had 28. 
You know, so it's, wow. I just wow. run into a lot of things. Well, it, what, what it brings up for me is you're talking about this, um, this area, what I would call growth. It's the growth area. It's the uncomfort zone and yeah. it takes uncomfort to be able to grow. And without, right. like, if we just live in our comfort zone of what we're fully confident in, all of that, you never push out and grow and see what you're capable of. Right. And that's what I'm continually reminded uh, with for myself is I think a lot of the scariest things that I do or take on, I could be, you know, pretty scared about doing it. But if I can step back and go, one, no, I think God has me in this for a reason. And then two, um, well, let's see if I can get through it. Yeah. And then I'm here right now. Like I've gotten through all of them up until this point. It shows that I'm, I've been capable of all that. And from that comes new confidence. And that's, I think, some of that, um, you know, confidence you can live with. And I think as we're talking about this whole side of growth, I think it's important to acknowledge, and you talk about this a lot, is that the Braveheart life is something that's both for men and women. And I think um, you definitely demonstrate this powerfully through the character Penny Chenery in your movie Secretariat. I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about Penny and even what led you to directing that specific movie. Yeah, um, Secretariat became a, um, was a surprise joy for me. Like Braveheart had this long personal journey and we were soldiers did too. Um, Secretariat came to me um, with a script already written, it was it was a good script. I did some work on it, but it, but uh, the original writer did did great work on it. Um, it was all set up at Disney, and uh, um, a, a man named Dick Cook was running Disney, and I really admired him. And when he said, you know, would you consider doing this, I immediately said, I'd certainly consider it. The and I had no interest in horse racing. I mean, look, I grew up a Baptist and gambling was like not something we did. Right. And, and I actually still feel that way. Like gambling is, feels to me like trying to get something without doing something in return. A shortcut, right? Shortcut. It's like, uh, -uh. Yeah. yeah, it's not a, not one I want to take. And horse racing seems to relate to that, but, um, and I found a horse that's beautiful, but I'd never been a rider. But Penny Chinnery, that story really lit up for mm -hmm. me. And then when I met the real woman, um, uh, I was I was I was struck by her strength, and she was never trying to get you to like her. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's kind of like that that uh, Willie Nelson song about cowboys, like they won't say things just so you'll like them. You know, they, they're they not out to get your approval. And Penny was not out to get your approval. I mean, I'm, I'm sure she would prefer if you liked her, maybe, but you couldn't even see that she would prefer it. She was just gonna give it to you straight. Yeah. And, um, uh, and even in her 90s, she was just a profoundly charismatic person. Yeah. Um, and, and that story about her having the vision, again, talking about self-doubt, which yeah. it was not that she was without doubt. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like she knew this horse was going to be, she knew this deal, she knew this. It wasn't any of that. She didn't know. But uh, there was a love of horses and horse racing and horse breeding with her father and when he passed she honored that and decided no let's not just sell it all out and and close it all down let's 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 see what's here and and then it became this horse and then it became all of you other guys are going to be telling me what's what hmm. I don't think so. Yeah. You know, it, it was almost like it wasn't mathematics. She couldn't calculate it. Right. She could sense that in the dynamic of 
they're all doing things like I, I saw a thing. Um, I forget even what channel it was, but you know, with my being laid up for some weeks with my knee yeah. and having to sit with my knee elevated, I've watched a lot of good and bad television, but um, yeah. there was a show about um, the, the families that started like Kellogg's and Post and Hershey's and, mm. and I believe it was the daughter of Post cereals and the, the daughter had played at um, her father's feet, like under the table mm. when he was having board meetings of his company. And when he actually killed himself, uh, he had uh, some terrible disease wow. and killed himself. And she is a very young woman back in near the turn of the century became the, the controlling shareholder of this massive corporation and sat down for the first board meeting with a bunch of men. And yeah. one of them said something like, well, listen, Missy, this is what needs to happen. And yeah. And she said, you know, my name is Ms. Post and you will, and I am the, I am the owner of this company and this is what's going to happen. Yeah. It's um, that spirit, if you will, Penny had that. Mm, yeah. That made it a story to me that it, story had to be in that but at the same time i wanted to keep that transcendent joy yeah which was another thing i want to say i found in your work guys the mm. like we're looking for the joy moment right yeah yeah for the celebration moment it's it's not that you just want to go okay good we got across the finish line you want to go yeah yeah you know, yeah that's uh you know, I wanted the the end of Secretariat to be oh happy day. Yeah, it certainly achieved just that. Um, that yeah. um, I rewatched it again recently, and it just gives you goosebumps. And I, I think largely because of yes, the spirit you're describing of who Penny Chenery was. And I mean, even th there's so much in that movie, even the family dynamics. I love how between her and her husband and their daughter, you know, they don't always agree on everything. And yet there's such a love and respect that right. transcends that. And, and, and the movie does end up being a celebration and it's, it's incredibly uplifting. And um, gosh, we could talk about your movies forever, but we want to be sensitive to your time as we kind of wrap up here. And Randall, one of the things that I was thinking of as we were uh, preparing for this um, is there's many different ways that I would love to thank you and your work for the way it's impacted my life. But there's a story I'd love to share that hits me on a very deep level that I've gathered from watching your life and even the way that you really talk about how some of the things that led to Braveheart were the fact that you kind of grew up with a lot of mystery you had a desire to understand where did I come from? Who was my grandfather? You know, what was life like on my mom's side? And, and how kind of that sense of mystery led you eventually to Scotland, almost as this, this trip of trying to figure out what am I going to tell my son about who I am? And the story I'd like to share is about my uncle Brad, who unfortunately I never uh, got to meet. But my uncle Brad has always been this very mysterious figure in my life. And I would say for me, one of the great sources of inspiration uh, to me that I would say undoubtedly lived the Braveheart life. Now, my uncle Brad, who was my mom's brother, he was an Air Force captain and he was stationed in Ramstein Air Base in Germany. And back during Desert Storm, he was given orders to serve as a public affairs officer in Saudi Arabia. Now, this is where the story gets a little funky, and you know, maybe to some of the listeners, this might be kind of a weird thing to say, but we know you're you share our faith, and you know, with, with movies like Heaven Is for Real, this is something that you um, certainly are no stranger to. But anyway, the the way the story goes is one day our uncle Brad he came to his friends on the airbase and he told them that the night before an angel of the Lord came to him in the night and and said that he would not return to Ramstein Air Base. And 
it was out of nowhere and the friends kind of laughed it off and you know thought maybe he had too much to drink or you know maybe he was he ate something weird the night before you know after all public affairs guys don't get killed and fair enough yeah public affairs guys don't get killed but as days went by Brad's demeanor it, it didn't change and his friends eventually would come to believe him and just before the assignment went down he Brad was offered the ability to forgo that assignment and it was his response to that that sticks with me to this day what he said was he said no he said no this is God's plan and as fate would have it a, a few days later Brad's C5 aircraft when it was taking off from Ramstein it malfunctioned and unfortunately he and I want to say 12 others perished but for me, it's kind of hearing that story and even the aftermath of how in Brad's free time, he was a youth pastor and um, he planned on becoming a clergyman after serving in the Air Force. And the day of his funeral at the Air Base, hundreds of these kids who have been a part of his youth group that he had really impacted filled this chapel. It was overflowing with people and they sang the hymn here I am, Lord. And just like that, you know, the dams bursted. Ever since, I've just heard so many stories of lives that he's impacted. But I want to wrap all that up to say that watching you and the courage and even the, the mystery that you allowed to, uh, and still to this day allowed to, to guide your life, that's been something really reaffirming in myself that I just have a sense that one day I'm going to have to go to Ramstein, Germany to meet the people who knew Brad and even kind of go on my own journey to understand where I came from. So that isn't as much of a question as to just say, I, I really uh, appreciate that part of your story. And that's, I'm convinced gonna be um, something really formative in my own life. Um, it may or may not be, I, I, I feel sure it is, it is possible, but try to go to the spot where the plane went down you know, try to stand on that spot. Um, I went to to London after Braveheart and hmm. went to the spot where William Wallace was torn apart. Yeah. And uh, went to the spot where he stood when he was being tried. Um, it's an important thing to do. Hmm. Yeah. To find something happens when you go there. In hmm. uh, that, you know, it's such a powerful story to say is like he couldn't see what would happen here he, he felt um, this message this divine message uh, compelling divine message and the idea of all these all these young people he had touched being there feeling that that's you know i i understand when atheists atheist friends of mine go well look this is this is not scientific. This is what, sure to me, enough. it's completely illogical to believe that there aren't things we don't understand that right. are at work. Um, especially when you hear them shouted in your heart in yeah. these ways. So, yeah. Well, guys, thank you for being a shout to my heart and, uh, to so many other people's. And, uh, I hope we get, get a chance to, uh, connect again in the future. Uh, I really appreciate the chance to be on with you. Well, Absolutely. we've been so honored and this has been such a treat for us and truly means more than you know. And yeah, we'll, we'll let you go. And I know you have some upcoming movies and all sorts of stuff that you're always working on. In the meantime, for the folks that want to follow along with everything you're doing, in addition to your movies, the songwriting and the podcast that you, you're working on with your son and all sorts of stuff, where can people follow what you're up to? I think it's under something like the randallwallace.com, but, um, but Andrew will know. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. No, we'll get a link and, and, and definitely put it out so everyone can follow along. And yeah, it's from what we've read, there's a lot of exciting things that you're working on and we're certainly going to stay tuned and I'd be happy to come back too if we ever want to do a reprise. So, uh, Cool. Cool. Um, well, we will 100% take you up on that offer. I really dig you guys. I mean, um, there, like a, you know, the, the the issue of chosen family. Um, yeah, uh, Julie Moore, who's like I say, part of the the renaming of Fort Benning into Fort Moore. Uh, she taught me the concept of chosen family. Like you've mm -hmm. got 
you got your family and then you got the, you got the people that go, okay, we're family. So, right. uh, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, I love to find people go, okay, kindred, kindred spirits, you know, yes. let's, let's be allies. Well, we are all for that and certainly feel the same with you. Cody and Kyler, thank you so much, brothers. Um, take care and uh, we'll see you down the road. Thank you so much, Randall. All right, until we meet again. A few closing thoughts, guys. First, we're so grateful you took the time to listen today. It really means a lot to us to be able to share our journey with you. Second, if you got any value or inspiration from this episode, please take a minute to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Lastly, remember, your story matters. So go for it today and live the outbound life.